Well, good morning, everyone, and I am happy to announce that Riley and Candace did have their baby boy, and his name is John Jacob Brian Newton, and he will be called Jack, just as his grandfather, John, Candace's father was called, who just passed away a month ago, and so baby Jack has arrived safely, and uh, Riley is here somewhere on zero sleep. So uh, if you see him today and he doesn't respond to you, that's part of what's going on, okay? He and uh, his wife just had the baby boy on Friday. Baby's home, and so we're thankful for that. So congratulations, Riley and Candace, if you happen to be watching, praying for you as well. Let's give them a hand of appreciation. Well, years ago, I served as camp pastor at a summer camp once a week every summer. And it was great to spend time with the families and share God's word with them. And uh, I especially enjoyed the time that we could have just getting to know each other. The camp that we served at had lakefront property on a lake in Ontario. And so one of the favorite activities of everyone in the camp was to go down to the lake to swim, and sometimes twice or three times a day. Well, During this particular week, there was a lifeguard. The camp had to hire a lifeguard every year to watch people down at the beach. And this lifeguard was a little bit overbearing when it came to enforcing basic lifeguard rules and things like that, to the point that she regularly scolded the kids and berated the parents for not uh, following her rules. And it got so bad that the parents talked to the camp director. And some of their kids did not even want to go down to the beach anymore because this lifeguard would be so severe with them. So the camp director met with the lifeguard and instructed them to tone it down a bit. And I wasn't part of that conversation, but I know it happened because you could see it on the lifeguard's face. And after that conversation, when she was down at the beach, she just slumped in her chair Her face was long and sad, and she didn't engage with anyone. So when people asked her how she was doing, the answer was, I'm not feeling very loved right now, which is an interesting response. The camp director did not dress her down publicly. They did not humiliate her. They did not in any way shame her in front of other people. They simply required her to back off a bit on her strictness. Yet the lifeguard interpreted this constructive criticism as a lack of love and even a personal attack. She was miserable for the rest of the day, maybe even the rest of the week, and I don't think she lasted the summer. And we can shake our heads at such a response, but the question I have for you today is how do we respond to constructive criticism. Few people welcome it, in my experience. We appreciate when someone wants to build us up and to help us, yet when it comes to actually receiving criticism, we struggle. We respond defensively. I've done so at times, and I've seen it when I have attempted to offer constructive criticism to others. Yet by its very definition, constructive criticism aims to help the person receiving it, to build them up, 
to construct with helpful feedback. It focuses on areas that can use strengthening. And if we're willing to receive and act on constructive criticism, we can grow and mature. So why might we struggle? Well, one reason might be that we've probably all have been on the receiving end of criticism that has been unhelpful or offered poorly. Think of our parents. None of us had perfect parents. There were probably times when our parents criticized us or offered criticism that was done out of a heart of tiredness or a state of tiredness. Or maybe we had a manager who was super stressed out and had to do our review and offered their criticism in an unhelpful almost destructive way. So we have these negative experiences with criticism and then we project those onto any attempt in the future of someone offering constructive criticism to us. And then some of us will respond by fighting it, denying it, resisting it, making a big stink and thinking that we have won the encounter with the person who's trying to constructively criticize us. But when we do that, we lose. We begin to cultivate a reputation of being uncorrectable, unteachable. We may have a lifetime of conflict with people. Or people will just simply give up trying to offer us helpful feedback. We may lose relationships, we may lose our jobs, and yet we refuse to receive. Whereas others of us might crumble at the slightest bit of criticism, like the lifeguard. And this can happen with those who define love as never criticizing the other person, like the lifeguard did. She assumed love was you never offered constructive criticism. Or it comes and often happens with people pleasers. I'm a recovering people people pleaser, And people-pleasers aim to please everyone, which is okay to a point, but it's also a recipe for slavery and vulnerability. It's slavery because some people are never pleased, or they remain pleased for a very short period of time. And so you're enslaved to trying to keep them happy. And it's also vulnerability because you always have to watch out for people's displeasure. Is this person displeased? Is that person displeased? And people-pleasing is ultimately a form of idolatry. For what if God asks us or commands us to do or say something that might not please another person? The people-pleaser will more naturally bow down to the idol of people-pleasing rather than obey God. So if we have a tendency to crumble under criticism, especially the constructive kind, we have to step back and ask ourselves, what is going on? And I think all of us initially resist attempts to discipline, correct, or constructively criticize us. Yet when someone offers it, we need to recognize this is a courageous act, whether it be a parent, a coach, a spouse, a supervisor, or your doctor or teacher. So why am I talking about this? Because God offers us constructive criticism. 
And our response to constructive criticism from other people might be hindering our relationship with God. God does invite us to come to him initially as we are. And we've seen that over the past few weeks, especially when Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But coming to Jesus as we are does not mean he wants us to stay where we are. Jesus loves us too much to leave us in the same, same state. He calls us to change, grow, and become whole in him. And sometimes that involves correction, constructive criticism. Did you know that God corrects? God disciplines us. God intervenes in our lives to awaken us to the destructive paths we might be taking. And he does it perfectly. He never does it out of a blown gasket or a loss of temper. He does it out of love for our good. And so today we're going to explore this feature of God's heart. And we're going to look at a statement that describes this reality and then explore what this statement says and how we can respond to it. And we will find it in the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Except those of you who have been following along know we're talking about Jesus' heart for us. So how are we going to find Jesus' heart in the Old Testament? And author Dane Ortland, in the book that we've been following, Gentle and Lowly, writes this. When we see Christ unveil his deepest heart as gentle and lowly, he continues on the natural tra trajectory of what God has already revealed about himself throughout the Old Testament. Jesus provides new sharpness to who God is, but not new content. So when we look at God's heart, remember Jesus has the same heart. And I pray that he is going to use our time together to help us see his good purposes behind this strange feature of our heart. So Lamentations chapter 3 is our text for today if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Or you can find it in the Bible in front of you on page 586. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 33. And I warn you, verses 1 to 20 are tough verses. But things get better in verse 21. So Lamentations 3 verses 1 to 33. I... And the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. That's God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. 
I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So the book of Lamentations is a carefully constructed series of poems that reflect on the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Many think that the prophet Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. In fact, Jewish tradition said that he wrote it from a cave, and from this cave he could see the Babylonians looting the temple and then destroying it. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that whoever authored Lamentations had great poetic skill. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 all have 22 verses corresponding to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And then chapter 3 has 66 verses, which is 3 times 22. And in Hebrew thought, they often put their main point in the middle of their writing. So we always put our main point or the, the climax of the story at the end of the movie or of the book where everything is resolved. But the Hebrew writer would put it in the middle so that the first part of the writing would lead up to the main point and the second part of the writing would reflect on the main point. So with that in mind, what is the center of the book of Lamentations? Where is it? Well, if it's five chapters, it's in chapter three. And if there's 66 verses in chapter three, it's, chap- it's verse 33. And it's possible that Lamentations 3.33 could be the main point of the entire collection of poems. So verse 33 again. For he, God, does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So there's our main statement. God does not afflict from his heart heart. Yet this statement may trouble us. Think about affliction. What is it? It means to trouble someone, 
To afflict means to bother them, upset them, bring distress into their lives, cause problems, make life miserable. Does God afflict? Does your understanding of God include this piece of his heart? And scripture answers, yes. There are several places in scripture where we see God afflicting, disciplining, and punishing those he loves. The author of Lamentations has witnessed this on a corporate scale where God has afflicted his people. The author watched the fall of Jerusalem and God allowed and ordained the Babylonians to come and conquer and destroy the city. God had warned the Israelites for centuries that this might happen. And finally it does. And he allows the Babylonians to even destroy Solomon's great temple. So we see a corporate example of God's afflicting work here in Lamentations. But this is not the only place in the Bible where we see it. Consider Psalm 90, verse 15, where Moses says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and as for many years as we have seen evil. So Moses acknowledges that God has afflicted the people and asks for an equal portion of time for them to be glad or psalm ninety four twelve. blessed is the man whom you discipline O lord and whom you teach out of your law or psalm one nineteen seventy one. it was good for me to be afflicted that i may learn your statutes or psalm one nineteen seventy five. i know O lord that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So this writer has experienced God's afflicting or disciplining work in his life, and he trusts that God was faithful in doing it. Or Jeremiah 31, 18, I have heard Ephraim grieving, you have disciplined me, O Lord, and I was undisciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are my Lord and my God. Or in Hebrews 12, 6, we read, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And Jesus himself says in Revelation three nineteen, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So why would God afflict his own people? And the testimony of scripture is that God afflicts us for his good purposes in our lives. God is someone who cares enough about us to intervene before we go off the deep end. And what might be some of God's good purposes for his discipline or afflicting work in our lives? Well, one is he may afflict us to reveal the state of our hearts. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says, And you shall remember the whole way, this is Moses talking to the people, that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And when everything is going well in our lives, it's pretty easy to be nice to everyone, 
to talk about how we love God and how we trust him and we can just smile and go on our merry way. But when some trouble comes along, what's really inside of us comes out. Like a grape, when it's squeezed and the juices come out, troubles come along and squeeze us and the juices come out, sometimes in bitterness, in complaining, in accusation towards God. Another reason God may afflict or discipline us is to grow character in our lives. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as the father, the son, in whom he delights. So this is the picture of a parent disciplining their child for the purpose of growing character in them. And discipline is required for us to grow and mature. Usually, usually this does not happen when our lives are easy. How many of us would say, the time I grew most in my life spiritually was when everything was going well, when I was on vacation, when I was relaxing. I have not yet once heard a testimony where someone said, when I was on the beach, enjoying the sun and the waves, I really went deep with God. No. Most of us don't go deep with God unless we're forced to. And then we're open to God shaping and growing our character. And God is our Lord who disciplines us in all the areas that are weak. God may also afflict or discipline us to call us back to himself in repentance. And perhaps this is one of the greatest reasons or the largest reason why he does this. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So the psalmist was going astray. He was going on a, on a, a bad path and somehow God afflicted him and got him going on the right path. And parents discipline their children to protect them from going down destructive paths. Stay away from that cliff. Don't touch that hot stove. God is like a loving parent who has the courage to discipline their child, even though it's unpleasant. And such a parent is keeping the bigger picture in mind. They are teaching their child the value of self-control, the value of listening to people with wisdom. And if parents don't gain the courage to discipline their kids, then their children will go out into the world as young adults with a lack of respect for authority and no self-control. And the consequences of that are far greater than a timeout, grounding, or loss of privilege that the child suffers while under the parent's roof. So God disciplines and afflicts us for our good. But within this framework, we have to remember as well that God so often and way more often shows us mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He often treats us with grace in an attempt to draw us back with kindness and love. Like Romans 2, 4 talks about, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So yes, God disciplines those he loves, yet he more often refrains from giving us what we deserve. Instead, he aims to win us with love and kindness. 
Yet we still might struggle with the concept of a God who afflicts his children. And if we go back to the destruction of Jerusalem, we see hardship on a widespread scale. Many were killed, people lost their homes and their city, thousands were deported, and the Babylonians shattered the entire infrastructure of the nation. Remember when we did Nehemiah before Christmas? 130 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, and the walls still lay in ruins. This was a devastating event in the life of the Israelites. How could God afflict his people like that? And how can we accept a God who afflicts? And this is where Lamentations 3.33 comes in. Remember, God does not afflict from the heart, my version says. From the heart, literally. Meaning, he doesn't enjoy it. God's first instinct is not to punish. He does so only when his patience with us does not lead to our repentance. Ortland puts it like this, the one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He's not reluctant about the ultimate good that will come through the pain, but something recoils within him in sending that affliction. The pain inflicted does not reflect his heart. God is not like some distant force pulling levers of the universe detached from our real pain and anguish. Ortland also writes, some of us view God's heart as brittle and easily offended or cold and uneasily moved. But the Old Testament gives us a picture of God whose heart defies these human conclusions about him. And we see it in other places in the Old Testament. Like Ezekiel 18.32, the Lord says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Or Ezekiel 33.11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So God does afflict and discipline us for his good purposes in our lives, yet he does not afflict from his heart, Yet, we must ensure we do not misapply this. And here's the potential misapplication. We must guard against concluding every affliction is something sent from God to afflict us. We must guard against concluding every affliction is an affliction from God. And maybe his discipline or his affliction explains 1%, 5% of our sufferings. So we must not go around concluding, you know, I've been diagnosed with some really severe illness. God is afflicting me. I have a loved one who died in my life. God's afflicting me. I experienced something terrible in my life. God afflicted me. Now, our sufferings result from multiple sources. Living in a fallen world, our own sins, the sins of others, the attacks of the devil, sometimes the discipline of God. 
So it's not helpful for us to sit there and think, you know, I think this is an affliction from God, so I've got to respond appropriately. Very seldom can we in the moment discern a purpose of affliction. Maybe only years later we can look back and say, you know, because that happened in my life, this good work came out of it. But we don't know in the moment. And so we need to trust. God is revealing this reality about himself to us. He's wrapping it in his love. And instead, approach every trial with the purposes that God says trials are for. Like, have if we've got any sin in our lives. Sometimes trials just awaken us to sin. And it's not the afflicting work of God, but we begin to think, oh my goodness, I've been doing this. What am I doing? So killing sin, furthering our faith in God is an accomplishment of trials, furthering patience in our lives, furthering love for others. When you suffer, when I suffer, and we go through a time of hardship, we have greater empathy for people who suffer the same things. So we don't sit around, it's not helpful to sit around, is God afflicting me in this moment? That's not, not the most helpful thing to do. Instead, we need to respond, and I'd like to change the last question there on the outline. It says, how do we respond to God's loving, afflicting work? How do we respond to the reality of God's loving, afflicting work, I would put it? And one important response is to not despise it. Not despise that this is part of God's character. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And, and you know how we sometimes might build up resentment towards people who discipline us in our lives? And so then we despise any attempt to discipline us from anyone? So we have to guard against our natural response to constructive criticism when it comes to God. Oh, no, you can't do that to me. No, you're wrong. No, don't despise it. The Lord doesn't do anything haphazardly. He does not lose his temporary acts for our good. So we need to take it seriously and act on it. And secondly, this is probably more important. We need to receive God's discipline as loved children, not inconvenient bothers in a parent's life as loved children the lord disciplines the one whom he loves and i think john piper has a great piece on this where he writes there are people i know who have a very hard time feeling loved by god their dad treated maybe a mom, maybe another authority figure, treated them in such a way that they never felt affirmed, never felt delighted and never felt accepted, never could measure up. He was always on their case, spanking, criticizing, speaking ugly words. So when it says God disciplines us in love, it's very hard for some to feel that as love. But the difference between a dad or a parent like that and our God who disciplines us in love is that God never, never feels contemptuous towards us. A dad, in his sinful meanness, might say, you're such an idiot. You always do that. And maybe hit his child. 
And his words are contemptuous and despising. But God never says, you always do that. You're just an idiot. You never do anything right. God never loses control like that. And if he brings any kind of hardship into our lives, it is with measured, careful, wise, loving application of his wisdom and his grace to our situation. And so he calls us for greater faith and greater humility. So God afflicts us, though not from his heart. His greatest desire is for our good and growth. So we need to receive his loving discipline. And I hope that you can look back on your life. Maybe you can point to times when God afflicted you and things became good out of that. Or maybe at least you experienced when your parents did things right. When they disciplined you in some way and it really turned out for your good. And think more about those situations than your negative experiences and the more that we can do that the more that we can more readily embrace God's disciplining and afflicting work in our lives and so to conclude today I've written a little prayer and I'm not very good at writing prayers but a little prayer at the bottom of the bulletin there for you if you're following along I think we have it on the screen as well and I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me do we have that last one and what I'd like you to do if you're if you'd like to is I'm going to read the line of each prayer or the the line contained in each prayer and then let's read it together if you would like to do this you can do this out loud with me or you can do it in your heart so I'm going to read it and then you can join me Lord Jesus, I know that you love me and want the best for me. Lord Jesus, I know that you love me and want the best for me. I trust that you perfectly offer discipline and constructive criticism. I trust that you perfectly offer discipline and constructive criticism. I confess my past resistance to your loving, afflicting work in my life. I confess my past resistance to your loving, afflicting work in my life. And then the last passage we can say together. So search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.